Uh, a lot of times uh, when we're watching action movies, right, the explosion scenes don't really catch us by surprise, do they? If you're watching something like a James Bond movie, maybe Jason, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible, uh, John Wick is the big one now, uh, you can usually see those things coming, right? There's a fight scene with guns shooting off near highly explosive materials. There's some type of chase scene on a busy highway where cars are just weaving in and out of traffic as uncomfortably as possible. There's a build in the music. Maybe the camera starts to take some really interesting shots and gets a little bit shaky. The dialogue can maybe get a little unhinged as the villain of the story is, is telling his master plan to the hero that may be stuck in some type of compromising situation. You see it coming every time, right? And it's predictable in a way. But still, some of us just, just love watching it, no matter how predictable that it really can be. What really surprises us, though, is when those explosions don't happen. And I say that this morning to say this. We have in Acts this morning that same type of buildup that's going on, right? If you remember, we have this debate that broke out in Antioch about how the Gentiles should be welcomed into the church, and it gets pretty heated, right? Heated enough where a church council needs to be gathered to settle these types of issues. One camp, a group of Jewish Christians that believe that the law of Moses is the only way that the Gentiles could be allowed into the family of faith. The other camp, Paul, Barnabas, and a few others, who believe that it is by faith alone in Jesus that you are welcomed in. And this thing really does have the, the potential building up as all of this stuff was leading up to the climax of the scene. And if it blows, it doesn't just blow up into angry arguments and a fight, but it could separate the church into two different factions. Just as it's starting to really catch some steam as the church is building. Because here, the gospel is what's on the line. And today, we're going to see this council that meets in Jerusalem come together and have this debate on a church-wide level, right? With the apostles and the elders making the final decision on the matter. And what's decided here will, will have very serious implications, right? For the early church, but also today as we are still living under the implications of this council and this meeting. So as we open up to uh, Acts 15 this morning, I'm really going to break this sermon up into three sections, right? And the way I'm going to do it is by going through the speeches that are given at this council. So first we'll look at Peter's speech, then we'll look at Paul and Barnabas, and third, we will look at James, all right? So we're going to go ahead and start looking at our first section this morning. So it's going to be Acts 15, verses 6 through 11. There we go. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting... God to the test 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Amen. So, Peter stands as uh, these debates are going on, and, and as an apostle, he's going to get a lot of respect in this room, right? People are going to fall silent. This is a man that learned and traveled with Jesus directly, right? So he holds a lot of weight in a room full of Christians. And what he does here is he, he tells them about what, what we read that happens back in chapter 10 of Acts, about sal- the salvation of Christ coming to the Gentiles through Peter's words by an act of God and the Holy Spirit falling on those Gentiles. <clears throat> we read in Acts 10, uh, 44 through 47, while Peter was still saying these things, meaning preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. All the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For, every, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Amen. So Peter has seen what God is, is doing through the Gentiles. And none of those Gentiles who, who came to believe in this situation were, were bound by the law and bound to follow the law as the Jews believed. They were set free from that law. And he very clearly states that, that there's no longer any distinction, distinction between believers, right? There shouldn't be any separation. He made this point that, that God had fully received the Gentiles apart from them being circumcised. And if God had allowed these Gentiles in full, as full members in relationship with him, then who are we to deny them? That? If, God re- or if God received them, then we should receive them into the church. Amen? We've read it before but in reference to this topic, but I think it's important that we read it again from Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In Christ, these... uh, Social, cultural, racial distinctions that, distinctions that were carried here and still can be carried today, really, they just don't matter. Or at least they shouldn't. Yet here we are, and, and, and they're having the debate. Peter puts forward a pretty profound question here in verse 10 when he asks, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This, is, this hits on a topic that we've been uh, talking about a lot lately in the men's Bible study on Monday nights. And just this very shameless plug since I'm up here. Men, come to the Bible study on Monday nights. It's at 6.30. You should be there. We have great conversations. We learn a lot from each other. Come to stuff like this. But moving on. Um, but we're going through Ezekiel right now. 
And it's, it's a prime example of this case, right? How the people of Israel constantly failed in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament. Uh, they'd be led by God out of whatever problem that they were facing, given all these things by God, and still turned around and worshipped idols and false gods every single chance they got. And then when they were warned by the prophets to repent or, or be punished by God, they just kind of said, meh, we're right. Thanks, though, but we're going to continue doing what we're doing over here. And then they had the, the, the goal to be surprised when he actually did it. It sounds kind of funny when you put it that way, but it, it's really what they would do. They had the law. They had the prophets. They knew God and, and what he expected out of them. They had this history of God delivering them over and over and over again. Yet like clockwork, they would just turn away from him and turn to some false idol of their own making that God could just smash into a million pieces. And he did every single time. And we can ask ourselves the question that gets asked when you talk about this often, of how dumb could they be? But church, we're no better. We turn everything into idols today, just as they did. False gods that will tremble in the sight of the true and living God. Celebrities, politicians, sports, sex, the, even the Bible itself, technology. We can turn all of those things into idols, and we turn all those things into idols every single chance that we get. And a lot of us do realize that, right? But if we realize that, it begs the question, why when a new person enters the church, when God has plucked that, that spot in their heart and they're, they're searching for him desperately, why do we so often feel the need to scare them away with legalism? Just as the Jews were trying to do here in Acts. You have to do this. You, you have to read this. You have to follow this tradition that we set up as men, step by step. Basically saying, stop everything that you're doing right now and do it exactly the way that we tell you. Be perfect the way that we tell you. Or it's a possibility that God will not forgive you, even if you repent of your sin. What is that? Now, I'm not saying that it specifically happens here at this church that I've seen, at least. But we all know it happens. It's an attack that, if we're being honest, is fair, that gets laid on the church very often. And as we can see, it's happened from the very beginning of the church. And friends, that, that is not the gospel. I don't know any other way to put it, but when you treat people that way, it, it's, it's abusive, right? It's an abusive tactic to put on people. It's what, is so, what has created this deconstruction culture that we see around us. It's just as Peter says, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of these people? that even we can't bear. In reality, it should a lot, look a lot more like what Peter says in verse 11, right? That we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And we need to go at it this, this way. Because what we're doing is not helping anything. 
I could go on on this topic all day long. I think you get what I'm saying here. And for the sake of time, we're going to move on to verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the sign, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So we don't get a lot here about what specifically uh, Paul and Barnabas told the people in attendance. But what we can draw from the text is that it would have been full of stories from the missionary trip that they were just on. God saving both the Jews and the Gentiles, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak. These great signs and wonders that were used by God to confirm the things that they were doing, to make sure that they knew that they were on the right track. And probably a few stories about their own persecution that they were feeling as well. But overall, what what they were trying to talk about was really just trying to reinforce what Peter had already laid in front of them. One commentator puts it this way, the lesson from Paul and Barnabas is that without God's direct approval and involvement, none of their accomplishments would have been possible, thus proving that Peter's statements are true. Church, our our witness uh, to the things that God has done in our lives and in the lives of others and in the life of our church they're important things. It brings that, that, it brings that, uh, that idea of these things that are humanly unexplainable, we'll say. It brings those things to the front. And those things that are humanly unexplainable only really have one explanation, right? And that's, that's God. How could a man like Paul be saved, Right? He was on the road to persecute Christians when he was converted. It was, it was a powerful work of God. How can an untrained man like Peter be a leader in the church? Right? He, was, he was just a fisherman when Jesus called him to follow him. It was a powerful work of God. We all have stories like that, and we all hear stories like that. And it's all by the glorious and, and powerful works of God and the moving of the Holy Spirit, that these things occur. Never forget that, that testimony and, and witness of God's actions. And never forget to, to share those testimonies as often as you can to really relay to people that these things are occurring and God is moving. Now let's go through our, our longest stretch of verses this morning, which are going to be verses 13 through 21. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnants of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. 
but should write to them to abstain from the things of the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Amen. So we now have James stand up and give his final judgment on the issue, right? And James is the brother of Jesus. And just for reference purposes, uh, James didn't become a believer in Jesus being the Messiah until after the resurrection. And he later rose to leadership in the church, church in Jerusalem. Most people think after Peter was forced to flee the church. And really, there, there's a whole other sermon just in that sentence right there that is for another Sunday, and, but we're going to stay here. But it's, it's a big deal. Uh, but James comes forward and stands in agreement with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. And what he does here is important. He goes back to the text of Scripture. James judged what was perceived to be a new work of God the very same way that we should do that, right? And that is by the word of God. He looked at what was written in, in the prophets. And you love to see that, right? He quotes back from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 in the speech. And the application that James is really trying to make here is to prove that in the Old Testament scriptures, it shows that God has always looked forward to a time where the Gentiles would be brought in. James isn't saying that this text, everything in this text, necessarily equates to what they're doing in that moment. But what he's doing is that he is making sure that it is known that these Gentiles would be included in God's plan. And it's been that way. But here, it's important that, that, that they know that God wants this relationship with the Gentiles. And that is evident in Scripture, and it should be taken seriously, just as everything else written in the words of Scripture should be. And there's a beautiful thing here, church. Notice that the text doesn't say that the, the Gentiles would become Jews. It doesn't say that, that they would have to be circumcised, right? The plain reading of the Scripture says that they are Gentiles and that God called them to himself. And what that doesn't mean is that anything has to uh, change about them culturally, per se, but that they would just be holy Gentiles. There are words that would be used to explain whether or not a Gentile would have to be brought into the Jewish face, and, and they are not used there. But instead, God took them for himself just as they were. And, and if God can do that, then, then church, why can't we? What we see here is uh, what James does is kind of work out a, a compromise in this situation that is going to keep both sides happy, right? Something that will keep the Pharisees at bay while not putting too much of a burden on the Gentiles. He says that they should abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. So do what you're supposed to do with your spouse only, basically. Um, don't eat blood. Don't, 
don't eat food that, are, that is dedicated to idols. And, and, and all of these things, you are, you are able, you have this freedom to do all of these things, but we're asking you just to kind of hold to these so that you would not be a stumbling block to your Jewish brothers and sisters. These recommendations were really about just one thing, and that was an act of, Lord, or of love towards the Jewish believers. That, that not being a stumbling block. And if any of you have talked to me, like in smaller groups, you know that that's a big thing to me. Showing that love. Because by holding to these four, they would have much less of an opportunity to offend brothers and sisters and cause another debacle that could separate the church while still having the freedom granted to them by Christ. These guidelines that James put forward were intended to just promote both moral conduct, conduct and respect amongst Christians, which in turn promotes unity in the body. And that is also very important. We should be unified as Christians. Now, I know that probably sounds kind of crazy, right? We have all of these different denominations and churches that believe all these different things about the Bible and how the faith should be practiced according to those beliefs. But we all should have, and, and for the most cases do have, a unity on one thing. And that one thing is the main thing. Of all of these differences, we all have unity in the gospel. That's what makes us all a part of what we would call the universal church. A few, a few months back when we had the uh, one church service out in St. Cloud, <clears throat> we had this, this moment of being the universal church. Though we all came from different churches, different traditions, denominations, different backgrounds, we all came together and were unified around the gospel. And if you were in that room that night, you could really feel that unity as we were gathered from the moment that we walked through the door. And the way they started that that evening was by stating the Nicene Creed together. It's a, it's a beautiful statement of faithful Orthodox Christianity that has been in the church since 381 A.D., and I'll tell you, I've, I've never seen a group more energized after saying a creed. I come from denominations where we say the creeds almost every Sunday, and it becomes such a repetitive thing that people don't care about it anymore. And that's a shame. I mean, for, for, for instance here, uh, uh, Victor threw up his hands at one point in, in agreement and celebration talking about the, the resurrection of Christ. When we were done reciting the creed, there were amens and, and, and shouts of praise. When we were finished, it was beautiful. It was a group of Christians that probably didn't agree on everything that came together with the same goal and the goal of sharing the gospel. And not just any gospel, but the gospel of our Lord. Amen? Amen. Unity, is, unity in the body, in his church, is so important. 
We all have these, like I was saying, these different backgrounds, different traditions, different lifestyles, different cultures. But the key, the key must always be Jesus Christ and his gospel. And to have this unity that that we seek in the body, sometimes it takes just not being a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters. To hold together this, this unity within God's church and, and, and his body. Unity doesn't mean that absence, absence of, of disagreements or differences of opinion. Instead, it's the way that we handle those differences. It's about coming together in prayer, seeking God's guidance through his word and allowing the Holy Spirit to move forward. In today's world where major divisions and disagreements are, are all too common, we need to remember these lessons from Acts. We must be willing to engage in respectful dialogue with fellow believers while always seeking the guidance through God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. We, we must do this, right? Unity doesn't mean com- conformity, Okay? So these different people that have these different traditions, it it doesn't mean that they have to conform to us just as the Gentiles did not have to do. Now I'll close with this this morning. Imagine a, a stained glass window for a minute. Each piece of that glass is unique with different colors and shapes and patterns. If you were to isolate just a single piece of that, right, it wouldn't be very impressive. But when all of the unique pieces come together and the light shines through it, you have this masterpiece. Sometimes, sometimes when we let our differences kill those moments, right? When we let it clash with other viewpoints, we take that light and we remove it. And we block off these different parts of that stained glass window instead of letting it all shine through. These different traditions in Christianity, yes, they may believe certain small different things, but they all have another piece that we put into the body of Christ. That when you put it all together, you get this, this beautiful picture. This beautiful picture of his, of his body, of his bride. And it's a wonderful thing. And, and we would be fools, absolute fools, to block any of that out. The light of God's love and his truth shines through that unity. And it becomes a testimony to, to the world that wants to be so divided on every single little thing of Christ's power to bring us together. So let us be like that stained glass window. A reminder that our unity as, as a church is a testament to the beauty and transformative power of Christ. Just as those diverse pieces of glass come together to create something so magnificent, so can we every single time we gather. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today with 
hearts that are burdened by the divisions that ex- exist within your church. We acknowledge that unity is your desire and it always has been for your people and we humbly seek your guidance and grace to bring us to, to a spirit of unity and repentance. Lord, we, we repent for those times where we have allowed pride, ego, selfishness to disrupt the harmony of your body. Lord, we, we confess our, our sins of division, of gossip, of, of judgment. And we ask for your forgiveness. Help us to truly grasp the, the weight of our actions and attitudes and help empower us to, to turn away from them. We pray for the faith to believe in the power of your Holy Spirit and to, to mend what is broken and to heal what is wounded. Strengthen our faith, Lord, so that we may trust in your promises of reconciliation and restoration. May we be, be like the prodigal son, returning to you with an open heart and spirit, recognizing our need for your grace and and your forgiveness. Help us to extend that same grace and forgiveness to one another. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who, who prayed for unity of his followers.